I want to invite you, uh, as we begin to uh, study this text this morning, to be reminded of the, the journey that has taken us to this place. I've entitled the sermon this morning, The Journey to the Cross and the Continued Education of the Twelve. After Peter's confession of Jesus Christ being the Messiah, we begin to see that very specifically, Jesus uh, is on a journey towards Jerusalem, on a journey towards the cross. When we come to the text this morning, actually, Jesus and his disciples are going to leave this area that we often call the Decapolis, or the Ten Cities. And this is the last time that Mark is going to record that Jesus is in this area, this, in this area of Galilee ministry. Jesus is, is making his way with his disciples toward Jerusalem, towards celebrating the Passover together and towards laying down his life. And on this journey, we have the continued education of the twelve. And this morning, we're going to see three very specific, what I call kingdom patterns that Jesus is wanting his disciples to know and understand that if you are following me, that if you want to be on my mission, that if you want to understand the kingdom, you have to align yourself with this way of thinking. And in a sense, none of these ways of thinking come natural to us. We only learn them from Jesus. And so we're going to look at three specific passages this morning, uh, or break our passage down into three specific uh, areas. And we're going to look at verses 30 to 32. I always give you an outline. We're going to take a look at this theology of the cross, verses 30 to 32. And verses 33 to 37, we're going to take a look at the theology of humble service. And verses 38 to 41, we're going to take a look at this theology of the kingdom. Now, with each one of these little sections, we're going to look at a kingdom pattern that Jesus is teaching that he wants us to repeat. And as we often know, with Jesus' disciples, but also with our own lives, learning to follow Jesus is a lot about unlearning what we have previously built our lives on or, or the ways of thinking that we have come uh, that, that are oftentimes very reflective of the culture around us. And Jesus is going to invite us to unlearn very specific things in ways that our world thinks. And he's going to invite us to em embrace or, in a sense, relearn the truths that he is going to impart to his disciples. So with each of these three areas, theology of the cross, theology of humble service, theology of the kingdom, we're going to look at a kingdom pattern. We're going to look at something that we need to unlearn. And we're going to have to look at, uh, look at something we need to embrace. Now, for our, our children this morning, also, let, raise your hand. If you are under 13 years old, let me see a hand going up. We've got two in the front, right? That, and that's probably our, our two that are, oh, there we got Simon going on. Here's, here's what I want. If you're under 13, guys, here's what I want. I want you, when we get to the second part of my sermon, we're going to talk a little bit about service. I want you to pay particular attention to what I'm saying about how does God talk about how we serve, all right? And I want you to have a conversation with your family together. So moms and dads, be listening to. We talk about the kids. We want to take a look at what does it mean to be great in God's eyes. So this is your one point I want you to focus on, right? So for our younger age, 
For those who are young at heart, kids, be looking for what I'm going to say about being great in God's eyes. That's the second point, verses 33 to 37, all right? Okay, let's begin with this theology of the cross, and I want to go ahead and just read this section again, verse 30 through 32. It says, They went on, they passed from there to Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. Now, you might think a little bit that, Sam, I thought we've talked about this before. We have. This is the second time that Jesus is going to specifically teach his disciples about the fact that he is going to be to suffer, to die, and to rise again. And in fact, he's going to teach a third time. And when we get to Mark 10.32, we're going we're to camp out there. We're going to talk about what is it that Jesus must do on the cross. But today, I just want you to make mental note. This is the second time that Jesus is specifically, intentionally taking time to teach his disciples about the fact that he must suffer and die. Now, two phrases I want just to, to point out to you. It says, Jesus did not want anyone to know. I told you before that, that after Peter's confession of Jesus as Messiah, Jesus was on a journey. He, he had set his eyes towards Jerusalem. And his public teaching ministry is, is not going to take place in this area of Galilee anymore. He's, he's really focused on the training of the twelve. And so this is the second time when he says Jesus did not, not want anyone to know. Jesus was focused on training his twelve. That was his focus. And so he was, he was uh, wanting, in a sense, not to be seen or not to be public as he's making his way out of Galilee and making his way down to Jerusalem. The second thing I want us to see in this passage before we take a look at the kingdom pattern is this word delivered, because this is a really important word for us here, because Jesus is going to talk about the fact not that he's just going to die, but he uses this word delivered. And it indicates that Jesus' death on the cross was not an accident. It wasn't just a murder. It was the fact that Jesus was delivered to those who would eventually take his life. Now, look with me at Acts 2, 22 to 24, because the disciples, after Jesus dies, I just want to point out to you that they picked up on this teaching. They didn't understand it then, but they're going to understand it after Jesus' death. Look at Acts 2, 22 to 24. Peter is now preaching. He's preaching after Jesus has been killed. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, look at this word, was delivered up according to the definite plan and knowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of law, or who was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, but God raised him, loosing the pangs of death, because it was possible, it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see this very clear word that the disciples understood that Jesus' death was not just an accident, but Jesus was delivered over to die. We see this also in Romans 8:31 and 32. It says, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And the reasoning is 
Because God did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. That's the same word, this idea of delivered. I just want to camp out. I won't go any further, but I want you to see how important that word is to this teaching. That Jesus was delivered over to death by the Father. All right. Now, let's take a look at this kingdom pattern, what we have to unlearn, and what we have to embrace from these verses. The kingdom pattern is simply... The cross comes before the crown. The cross before the crown. When we, we look at Jesus, that there is death before life. And this is something that Jesus is not only going to first model for us, is that Jesus would first go to the cross before he would rise again. This becomes the pattern for every believer to follow. The cross before the crown. What do you what we unlearn? What we want to unlearn from this passage, and I think this is a, often a, a big misconception when we talk about what it means to follow Jesus. I want us to unlearn that adding Jesus to our lives equals following Jesus. Let me just kind of unpack this. For many of us who uh, maybe uh, grow up attending church, or many many of us who hear about Jesus for the first time is that what we think in our mind is that if we simply add Jesus or we believe in the truths that, that we're teaching at church, then I am a follower of Jesus. I'm just simply, to, to all the other things that I, I believe, to all the other things that I hold dear, I'm also adding faith in Jesus. And yet that's never what Jesus offers us. Jesus is not what we add to our lives and specifically, I would say, in, in our generation of the church, he's not what we conveniently add to the many good things that our life already is built on. Our nice jobs, our nice places, we, we have, in, in a sense, generally comfortable lives for the most part. And then we also add Jesus. We add faith on top of that. And that's not at all what Jesus is uh, showing us as far as this pattern of the cross before the crown, of death before life. Let me remind you of Mark 8, 34 to 36. Remember, after Peter's confession of Jesus as Messiah, Jesus says this. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to forfeit his soul? You see here Jesus' very clear call that if you will follow him, you must first lay down your life. What we need to unlearn is the fact that we simply add Jesus to the many things that we already embrace. No, Jesus is... is the exact opposite. If we are going to follow Jesus, we lay everything else down. It's, it's basically, I can have all that I have now, or I can have Jesus. But you don't get to simply say, I have all I've got. And I also do believe that Jesus is true. I believe, that, I believe what you say about Jesus. I believe that he's good. I believe that he's God. But it, it, is, not, it is not that we get to sit and hold on to everything else. It is either or. Either we die to self, and this is what we need to embrace, 
We must die to self to follow Jesus. Maybe the best way to explain it is a simple illustration. For the most part, I think we all know what it looks like to drive a car. I've got the keys. I'm in the driver's seat. I control the speed. I control where I go. Wherever I determine, I can drive. Basically, I determine the destination. I determine the speed. I determine uh, everything as long as I am in the driver's seat. Maybe the best way, just a simple illustration, is that if you were to come to Jesus, you literally get out of the driver's seat, and he is the one who drives the car. You don't both get to drive. You, you are literally relinquishing control of your life and recognizing that in the pattern we have from Jesus, the cross comes before the crown. Jesus laid his life down following the will of the Father, and he was raised again. You also, if you were to follow Jesus Christ, he is not what you add to your happy life. Instead, Jesus offers us the opportunity to lay everything down at his feet and exchange our lives and the lives that we built and the things that I'm trusting to save me or the life that I'm building, we exchange that. It's like, Jesus, everything I have, everything that is my treasure, I'm willing to exchange in order to follow you. I know that is the way that my sins are forgiven. I know that that is the way that leads to life. So, the first thing I want us to see is this kingdom pattern. Cross before the crown, unlearn simply adding Jesus equals following Jesus, which I think is a common theology of those in the church today. Is you can have everything in life and also just follow Jesus and everything will be fine. That's never what following Jesus looks like. If you want to start following Jesus, Jesus says, here's how you begin. You trade everything else in. You start again. I am the foundation. I'm the one who drives the car. I'm the one who shows you how to walk on my ways. And you allow me to run your life. And so we need to embrace dying to self in order to follow Jesus. The second thing I want to take a look at in verses 33 to 37 is theology of humble service. I won't read the text again. I think we know the story. The the disciples were arguing. The disciples are debating who is the most important in the kingdom. And Jesus, being the amazing teacher that he is, when they find a stop, he kind of lets it go on. Parents, this is a great way uh, for us to to think about life. Jesus basically lets the argument go on the entire time they're walking. I step in as soon as the argument begins, like, enough. Jesus allows their hearts to work through the whole thing. Maybe he would have been amused to hear exactly how they defended why each one was the greatest. But what we know is that when they come to a stopping point, that Jesus is going to ask them. Now, I don't think that Jesus was completely unaware of what they were talking about. But in Jesus' typical style, Jesus asks questions to draw out the heart. And so Jesus is going to ask them, what were you guys talking about on the journey there? And the disciples really don't want to answer because they know what they've been talking about. So just notice the irony here. The passage just above, Jesus is talking about how he must go and lay down his life. Jesus, on Jesus' mind is this idea of laying down his life self-sacrifice. And in the disciples' minds, after they had just heard this teaching, the first thing that their mind is processing on the way 
is self-promotion. Which of them was the greatest? Do you see the amazing contrast? And do you see how, in a sense, their minds are just operating in two very different ways? And it's why we basically need to say, what is the kingdom pattern? What is Jesus teaching? And how do I need to absolutely realign my life? Because left to themselves, the disciples are following Jesus. They're seeing the miracles of Jesus. But in their own minds, they're debating which of them is the greatest follower of Jesus. And so we see this massive disconnect. And so the kingdom pattern that we want to see is that the greatest of all is the servant of all. The greatest of all is the servant of all. What we need to understand, you know, we, we uh, use these words. It's more blessed to give than to receive, right? Everybody knows that one. And we also know that uh, it's true some of the time for us, not all the time. Uh, as, as you get older, I would say, especially as I've had, I've had kids, right? The, the, the joy of thinking about how to provide for our kids as the mature, maturity process works its way out in my life. One of the things I've seen is that as you get older, you have true, genuine joy in providing for others and giving to others and giving good things to others. But I think we all could confess, right? When you were a, uh, a kid, wasn't your birthday all about that thing you wanted? Like, wasn't your birthday totally about you? Uh, in fact, have you ever been to the party of uh, those who are uh, young brothers or sisters and the, they simply, the one can't, can't handle the other getting presents if it's if it's not their birthday. Have you been there? Uh, I've been to birthdays where, where both kids got presents on both of their birthdays. Well, if it was this child's birthday, they other ones still got presents. If it was this child's birthday, the other ones still got presents. The reason is when we're young, we have a hard time. Our focus is so much on what I'm getting that we can't actually embrace the true joy of giving. Something similar is going on with this. Uh, this story about looking at who is the greatest versus what Jesus is going to say, the greatest of all is the servant of all. Remember this classic text? This is John 13, 12 to 15. If we were to put, in a sense, a story to this, this is a story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. John 13, 12 to 15 says, When he had washed their feet, and has put on his outer garments, he resumed his place, and he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am so. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. You can't make a step that would be serving somebody else or placing yourself in a lower position to serve somebody else than washing somebody's feet in this culture. Jesus does the thing that, in a sense, none of the other disciples were willing to do. And Jesus is going to want his disciples, they're arguing about which of them is the greatest. I would love to know exactly how that conversation went. Maybe it was led by the three who had just, in a previous passage, seeing Jesus' glory in the transfiguration. Maybe they were looking down at the nine disciples who stayed and couldn't cast out the demon, think, hey, if you really think you're the greatest in the kingdom, let me just tell you, buddy, you failed to cast out that demon. That was an epic fail. That was real good on Jesus' reputation. 
I'm sure it's not one of you nine. It's got to be one of us three. I don't know how the discussion went, but you're human enough. I'm human enough to know that they probably traded some pretty sharp words. They probably traded some, uh, I wouldn't say literal punches, but there were probably some gut punches to what they observed about each other. Have you ever noticed when you're trying to cut somebody down, you pull out some of the, the not nice things you've observed them doing or their failures, right? Uh, I'm sure if the disciples are debating, they are probably pulling out all of the weaknesses, all of the things that they've observed, all the ways that they failed, all the things that they've said. And Jesus is going to help us look at something different. He's going to, in fact, turn the whole paradigm of how the world thinks of greatness on its head. Before we move on, and what we need to unlearn, I I just want to unpack this idea, right? In this section, we have a, uh, a story of Jesus putting a child on his lap. Right? In our day and age, and I, I actually researched this quite a bit, because I, I was trying to figure out how does this illustration of Jesus taking a child, putting it on his lap, help us understand the this, this story of the greatest. If you live in our day and age, we tend to idolize and adore children. Um, we, when um, we, we visit friends or when you have aunts or uncles come or grandparents, right? The first thing they do when they haven't seen a kid is like, I've brought you presents, I've bought you things. Uh, and we really, really celebrate children in a way that ancient cultures didn't. And one of the things that I was trying to understand is how does this illustration really fit the message? And so one of the things that I was able to, to uh, find out historically, was that the ancient perception of children was not this way at all. In fact, the word for child or a young child and the word for servant were one and the same. And so in the, the estimation of the disciples, to see a child in the house would be looking at somebody who was the least in terms of position in the house. Children and the servants were the least. And so it's not like today where we often put a, a very high value on adorable kids. Uh, and, have, I mean, have you ever done this? If you're, if you're going to have dinner at somebody's house who's invited you, instead of you getting something for the parents, you just get something for the kids. It's, it's a way of saying, hey, thanks for having me over. And so we buy things for the kids. What we need to do is we need this, this perception that we have to be completely turned upside down. Because the children were, in the eyes of that culture, the least of positions. Remember Jesus' stories about how when uh, Jesus would attend a, a dinner and people would fight for position? So literally, we know when they attended a dinner, they were placed in order of who had the highest position. The highest position sat next to the one giving the party, and they literally put people in position based upon how important they were or their position in society. So when we look at this culture, it was really important. Uh, you know, and in fact, some cultures, because age is so important, when they first meet you, the first question is, how old are you? Which is not what we would ask in a U.S. culture. People might think you're rude. For some cultures, it's opposite. You need to know their age, so you, need to, so you know how much respect to give them. Are they above me or below me? And just it's based upon the age. So what's taking place here is kids do not occupy position of being prized. And so Jesus is going to take this child, he puts him on his lap, and basically says, this is 
the person who has the least position in the house. And welcoming someone like this, welcoming a child, welcoming those with the least position, shows that you understand and follow me. That you understand my teachings. And so, what we need to unlearn is this. We tend to judge greatness by how many see me and serve me. We live in a culture where the focus is on me. And we use outward measures, right? Think about this. Our outward measures of judging somebody and their greatness is what is their position? What kind of successes have they had? What kind of achievements have they had? What kind of wealth do they have? What kind of car do they drive? What kind of house do they have? Has anybody used any of those measures to discern where somebody is at in the position of society or even to you? Have you used any of these? They're all outward measures. And they're all measures about, do people see me? Do they see my significance? Do they see what I've done? What we need to embrace, Jesus is going to invite us to see greatness is how many people we see or I see and how many people I serve. You see the difference. The kingdom pattern is greatness. The greatest of all is the servant of all. What we have to unlearn is greatness is how many people see me and serve me. What we have to embrace is greatness is how many people I see and how many people I serve. Do you see the difference? It's light and day, completely opposite. If we are going to judge greatness in the kingdom, Jesus says, you want to be great? If you want to pursue greatness, here's how you do it. Ask God to give you eyes to see as many needs as you can, no matter how low the position, no matter how low the status, and you serve out of a heart that wants to bring God glory by seeing the least. That's why Jesus takes the child and puts the child on his lap. Because I promise you, when that group of his disciples was thinking of this, their whole debate was who's the greatest. And Jesus places a child on his lap and you say, you want to know which of you are the greatest? Did anybody see this child? Did anybody have any concern? Did anybody love this child the way that God loves him? You're sitting here arguing about which of you are the greatest? I'll tell you what someone would do if he was the greatest in this room. He would look for the the lowest, the lowly, and he would make sure that that person knows of God's great love for them. And he would do it through acts of service, not words. He would serve. And so we see Jesus inviting us to unlearn how we judge greatness and to relearn how we understand what it is to be great. And it's basically a pride issue, to be honest. I'll never forget, I'll tell you a quick story. When I lived in Africa, uh, I was in high school, and I uh, was that was a culture where the child in the house was definitely the lowest. In fact, uh, I was always called small boy. Not, not to demean me, but that was small boy was anybody who, who was not the parents. Uh, and when I was in Africa, uh, every day I was doing my classwork. I didn't have a school that I went to. I had to do uh, classes... I would say online, but it wasn't online. It was correspondence courses. So every day I was in the house working, and I would knock the door. Go to the door, and it was the same conversation all the time. Small boy, give me some water. Because anybody who came by knew that we had cold water. We were the only place that had a fridge. And, and I would get knocks on the door. Let me just tell you, that grated my nerves. 
Small boy, get me water. Small boy, get me water. Anytime they wanted my parents. And when I reflect on it, really what it, it showed was at that point in time in my maturity process, I was not able to serve others with joy. Uh, I hated being called small boy. I felt like, learn my name. Uh, or say, young man, why small boy, right? But when we, we, we see that different cultures operate in different ways, here's all I want to tell you is, one of the first things that you're going to have to do if we're going to serve is you're going to have to get rid of our pride. It stops us all the time. Right? Have you ever thought something was below you to do? Have you ever uh, thought about, or, or maybe think about it this way, have you ever done something, that, whether big or small, and nobody even gave you any praise for doing it and how that bothered you? Has that happened to you? Have you felt like, I serve and serve, and then nobody says a word. Now, there is a problem. If, if we aren't seen and, and saying, hey, we appreciate your work, then there's a problem. But also, at the same time, why do we serve? There has to be a different motivation that others might see and others might praise me. And so, let me just invite you to embrace this idea of greatness is how many people I see and how many people I serve. That was what Jesus was inviting his disciples. Now, let's get to this theology of the kingdom. And we'll begin to close this morning. Theology of the kingdom, this kingdom pattern. I want to point us, instead of reading the whole passage again, I want to point us to a, a couple phrases in here. In your name. So when we get to verses 38 to 41, I'll simply summarize it again. John brings up a, a, a specific incident where he sees somebody else. And all he says is they're not one of us. Not one of us. He sees somebody else casting out a demon. And he tells Jesus, I basically, we told them to stop. Because they're not one of us. Now, in your name, from what we can see here is that this person obviously had true belief. There was some type of faith. And this person had seen Jesus casting out demons in his name. And this, this person had taken upon themselves to begin doing the work that Jesus was doing. And we take it as, in a sense, representative of true faith because God cast out the demon. Last week we looked at we don't have the power within us. And casting out a demon is not simply a formula of trying to say the right things. So what we see is that this person genuinely believed in Jesus. He called on his name to cast out the demon, and then God answered. And John has a problem with this. Because he says, his reason is, because he's not one of us. All right, so this is where we've got to dig in deeper. And by the way, um, there are examples of those who tried to use Jesus' name to cast out demons where it went terribly wrong. Acts 19, 11 through 16. Uh, I won't read all of this, but what I'll simply uh, remind you of, do you remember the, the seven sons of, of uh, there was a, a, a priest named Sceva, or Siva, S-C-E-V-A. And they, seeing how Paul had cast out demons, tried to repeat the same process. Uh, and it didn't go so well for them. They tried to cast out a demon and the demon literally responded to them, I know Jesus and I know Paul, who are you? And the demon attacked them. And so I just want to point out that story uh, because 
using the name of Jesus represents true belief in Jesus. What we see here is, is not some kind of formula that others are using and they're going around the city and casting out demons. We see an example of what looks to be true belief and using Jesus' name to cast out a demon. Now, here's what I, the kingdom pattern that Jesus is going to invite us to see, and that is, the one who is not against us is for us. This is the kingdom pattern. John basically wants this guy to stop. Uh, I, he approaches him and tells him to stop casting out demons. And then he's going to go tell Jesus about it. Uh, so, in a sense, if you have kids and you've seen this pattern, uh, they're going to come back and tell mom and dad. I'm going to tell mom and dad. I'm going to tell Jesus what you did. Uh, you can't do that. So he comes back, and he's going to tell Jesus, and Jesus is going to surprise them. And he says, the one who is not against us is for us. So what do we have to unlearn? We have to unlearn us versus them. Attitudes of jealousy, insecurity, competition, and critique. Have you experienced this? When, when I was uh, growing up, my father was a pastor, and so I knew no other churches than my dad's. And as I got older and I started getting to university, I started meeting many other believers coming from many other churches. And when I was younger in the faith, whenever somebody else talked about how great their church was, I immediately wanted to critique it, debunk it, and tear it down. Because in my mind, there, no, there's one great church. I came from it. There was one great pastor, my dad. I had... Now, and we laugh, but this is really something that we see. If, have you heard about God's grace on other churches or other people or other ministries? And your immediate response was more defensive rather than praising God for what he was doing? Your immediate response was to think of, I what their doctrine, I know it's different than ours. Or, I know their church is different than ours. Or, I know their leaders, and I don't think much of their leaders. Have you ever uh, heard about God using another church? And your immediate response is jealousy, critique, and competition? Instead of just praising God for what he had done? One of the things that we, we need to work out of ourselves is this us versus them. And there's two characteristics that clearly do not honor Jesus. And the one is when we criticize or critique others when they share about what God is doing. And the, the, uh, the other, well, I just gave you my two. Uh, when we criticize or, or when we think exclusively. Sorry, there's my two. The first is criticism. The first is exclusivity. That, that we only want to see God working in us. So here's what I just want to tell you. And this we tell every visitor. River of life is only one aspect of what God is doing in the city. There is no way we could do all the work. There is no way that God, in desiring to bring himself glory, will not equally bless every single place where the gospel is proclaimed and Jesus is being trusted and true faith is being preached and the scriptures are being taught. If you have those things, if they're truly preaching the gospel, if they're truly preaching the scriptures, they might be different from us. But the reality is, our prayer is for God's glory to grow and expand. Our prayer is that the church would grow in the city. And if it means that's not us, we have to be okay with God's grace being poured out. Let me just tell you, 
Where God works anywhere, it's always grace. That church didn't earn it. It isn't because they somehow have a better strategy, preach gospel better. God, wherever he works, he pours out his grace. You might see God use somebody and you think, they're so much less spiritually mature. Or when I've heard them share, and they, they stumble all over themselves. God delights in using broken people to share his story of redemption and reconciliation, and we don't get to choose who God uses. But what you can choose to do is praise God for wherever he's at work. We can't have an idea of competition or jealousy. We can't have an idea of exclusivity. River of Life is one part of what God is doing in the city. And I want you to be free, to be set free. If you hear something good going on in our city where the gospel is growing because the gospel is going out, praise God. Don't compare it. Don't need to qualify it. Don't get in there with all of your questions to figure out and dig in. Do they do it the right way? Do they do it our way? Is the gospel being preached? Is Jesus being trusted? Are the scriptures being taught? Are true disciples being made? If that's happening, praise God for what he's doing. I won't get into the details, but what I'll tell you is this. Philippians, uh, Philippians 1, 15-18, Paul gives a similar story, right? where there's the gospel being preached, sometimes by his adversaries. And Paul, and Paul basically says this, listen, if the gospel is being preached, praise God, trust God with the results. Let time figure things out. In the meantime, when somebody gives you reason to praise, just praise God. The gospel will get worked out. Time will work out whether it's real or not. But what you can do is just praise God wherever you hear him working. So here's unlearn us versus them and embrace kingdom cooperation versus kingdom competition. This is the last point. All right? Now, our practical application for today is just those three things. I want to invite you just to look at your life. We've given three areas where I told you Jesus is going to invite his disciples to align their lives with him in the kingdom pattern. We've looked at three kingdom patterns. we looked at three things that we need to unlearn. We've looked at three ways that we're going to need to embrace Jesus' teaching. What I want you to do is just think for yourself, which area do you need the most growth? What needs to happen in your life today so that you are fully aligned with the cross before the crown, but the greatest of all is the servant of all, or kingdom cooperation versus kingdom competition. Which is it for you? All of us need to grow in all three areas, but just today, which one is the Holy Spirit really convicting you about? And what is the first step of obedience? Let me just give you a minute for reflection, and then we'll close our time with our last song. And let me invite Carrie up and let me pray. Just ask God for you, give you the faith to make a step. Carrie, come on, close with us. Father, these things that you're working on in our lives, these areas that we want to give to you and align to you, with each and every individual, would you help them make a step of obedience towards you? The cross before the crown, of the greatest of all is the least of all. And how we don't want to participate in kingdom competition, but cooperation. Holy Spirit, lead, guide, and help us make that step. Amen.